Welcome to the Love Lab Podcast, a safe place to get real about sex. Whether you're a man, woman, single, or couple, this is the show for you. We are your hosts, Kevin Anthony and Celine Remy, and we are here to guide you to go from good to amazing in the bedroom and beyond. All right, welcome back to the Love Lab Podcast. This is episode 194, and it is titled The Modern Lifestyle Dilemma and How It's Affecting Your Relationship with Michelle Druin. So this is going to be a fascinating conversation because it's going to cover a lot of ground and it's going to talk about some things that, you know, we talked about on the show a little bit, a long, long time ago, but we didn't really have necessarily all the data behind that conversation. So today I think is going to be really fascinating because we do have the data behind that and we have a... Uh, research scientist who has done some of this research. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how, how people are basically sort of starving for intimacy and how our modern lifestyle is what's contributing to it. Now, you may be listening to this in the moment and going, oh yeah, whatever, you're just going to harp on technology again or whatever and blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. If you are not happy and satisfied in your life, there are areas that you may not be aware of that are negatively affecting it. And this conversation is not only going to bring that awareness to you, it's also going to give you solutions for how you can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Which we always love are the solutions, right? So before we bring in our guest, let's give a big shout out to our sponsors, Power and Mastery. So if you want to join the secret club of men who are great in bed, then check out Power and Mastery at powerandmastery.com. It is the most complete sexual mastery training for men, whether you want to have harder erections, last longer, or increase your sexual skills, there is something for you at powerandmastery.com. So our guest today, and I'm going to say her name in French because I can, ha ha ha, <laughs> is Michelle Drouin. And she's a PhD, is a professor of psychology and senior research scientist who conducts research on sexuality, interpersonal relationships and technology. Her book, Out of Touch, How to Survive an Intimacy Famine, was released in February. So we are very excited to be having you on the Love Lab podcast, on the Love Lab podcast podcast, Michelle. So welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited about this conversation. <clears throat> yeah. And I know that we, we chit-chatted chit a little bit before and you have something that's really unusual. You were raised by hippies, but you also have a degree from Oxford. So like, Tell us how that happened because we're like, we like it doesn't really go together. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really does not. Um, I mean, the raised by hippies, what really mostly my mom, my mom and uh, dad divorced when I was really young, and then we had kind of a very tumultuous lifestyle. We moved around a lot. At one point, um, my mom and dad were living in a tent by a river in Colorado, and my mom had two young children, and she suddenly realized wait, someone could maybe be eaten by a bear. <laughs> so decided that, decided that we had to move. <clears throat> and then through all of the movement and, you know, we, I had another stepfather, I ended up living in a shelter for a while. We didn't have a lot of stability, but through all the chaos, I think my mom just really reinforced love as a foundation for us all. So even when it was me, my sister, my brother, and she was pregnant and we were living in a one room, I always felt really loved and protected. 
it. And I always felt a empowerment, I think, to address my own needs, to stand up for what I believe in. You know, if we think of the hippie movement, we think of love, but we also think of power. You know, they had a lot of, uh, feelings about a lot of the issues that were going on in the country at the time. And they felt very empowered to stand up for those issues. So I think my mom instilled in me both love and a a desire to just assert my own beliefs. And I think that's what led me to, you know, pursue higher schooling. I went to a public school. There wasn't, you know, a lot to do in my town in terms of career prospects. And I always just thought I'm going to strive as high as I can and see where it takes me. My mom is still surprised. (laughs) I found out the other day that I ranked in the world's top 2% of scientists, which I don't know how I didn't get an official letter or something. I, I just, I stumbled upon this as I was reading an application of someone else for a big award. And I thought, wait a second, maybe I'm on this list. And I looked and I was, <laughs> I'm on this list. So out of like more than 8 million scientists, I'm in the top 2% of scientists in the world. And I called my mom and I just think she can't believe it. You know, she can't believe that all she really wanted us is to stand up for our own beliefs and to be, you know, loved and to love around. And here we, here I am a scientist. <laughs> I think she's still surprised. Um, yeah. So it was a, it was a, kind of an interesting trajectory to get where I am today. Well, congratulations on being in the top 2%. That is actually amazing. <laughs> that, that, really, Thank you. that really is. Um, and what's cool about it is you didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know. Where's my letter? That's what I want to know. Right? Like, unlike <laughs> no a lot idea. of these scientists who think they're God, you, you didn't even yeah. know you were on the list. So that's really cool. But <laughs> aside from that, you know, the reason we asked that first question is because, I don't know, hold up the book here, because you, you wrote this book, Out of Touch, and the, and the subtitle is How to Survive in an Intimacy Famine. And so I think that your background, your upbringing kind of helps show that not only have you done research as a scientist on this, but you had sort of what most people would consider a challenging childhood, right? Yeah. And so you okay. had to learn how to survive that, how to make sure that you were, you know, getting the things that you need. And so I think all of that factors into how you got to where you are and how you chose what you're currently studying. And so I just think it's directly relevant to, you know, the information that we're going to talk about. So that's why we we asked. Otherwise, it's also just a fun story. (laughs) (laughs) It is. But hey, I'm so happy you made that connection. You know, I did that. uh, How to Survive Childhood was really a lot about my, you know, my mom and growing up as a, you know, a really impoverished child in the United States and relying upon, you know, Sesame Street and an avocado to get me through the day, you know? So, um, but thank you for making that connection. No one who I've interviewed with has yet made that connection. That's meaningful to me. You really get it. You're you're welcome. Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed the book and we'll talk more about the book. This, you know, when we have these conversations and and guests come on and they've written a book or whatever, what we do generally is not, let's just pitch the book all day long. We want to talk about the ideas and then, oh, by the way, they're also in the book. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that, but like, you, what you mentioned, and, and people who are listening probably uh, didn't quite catch it unless they've read the book, but in the book, you've kind of broken it down, like how to survive childhood, how to survive dating, how to survive marriage, right? So there's all these like sort of major points in life and how to get through them, you know, especially from like an intimacy point of view. And so if you're listening, and uh, that's how we make that connection, right? That, that's how that connection was made. Okay. 
One thing that I find hilarious too is that when you read the book, it's like sometimes at times I was imagining Michelle as this mad scientist with her lab coat on and like crazy. And then if you're watching the video, like you see she's super cute, like totally down to earth. Like it's like you have like multiple facets of you that are <laughs> being expressed. And I love that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm really the silly girl with the avocado. <laughs> Am I really the, the lab coat feels like an imposter truly I mean I didn't even know I was the scientist you know so um I I feel like I've always been a little bit non-traditional I remember just kind of when I was at Oxford I would just rush in and I would you know everyone would be there on their computers and I'm like where are we going tonight and you know I've always maybe been a little bit of a visitor in all my worlds but you know I I've loved that and yeah thank you for recognizing that as well well I think the scientific community could use a few more little girls with avocado <laughs> I agree. They're a little I stiff agree. and uptight over there sometimes. Okay, all right. Let's let's stay on track now. <laughs> all right. So the next question, when when we talk about like we we titled this the modern lifestyle dilemma. So when we're when we're using that phrase, modern lifestyle dilemma, what does that mean? Like, so so the audience can understand what are we really talking about here? You know, it's. Nothing that I think has been really defined in the literature, but lately I've been thinking about it in a pretty simple analogy of text talk touch. You know, basically as we go through life, we can choose to have really short bursts of intimacy, communication, connection, or we can get a little bit more involved, or we can have the ultimately immersive experiences, which I think are the face-to-face experiences that we have with others. But even this, what we're doing right now is better than if we would have had, you know, a hundred thousand emails. What we're doing now, seeing each other's faces, being able to laugh with each other. This is a relationship building context that we don't have when we're talking about asynchronous communication. So I think the modern dilemma really encapsulates just the constant struggles we have to try to meet our immediate needs for our to-do list plus you know trying to meet our needs as humans and then our long-term needs in terms of our to-do list and meeting our needs as humans and technology is a major player in that dilemma. It sure is. Uh, I have a very, I'm a former technology guy. Like I worked for big tech for years, like some of the biggest technology companies in the world. And uh, so I know tech really well. And I have very strong feelings about not only the positive of tech, but absolutely the negative of tech. And so when you say something like, well, you know, tech is a big part of that, Tell me what you think, like from your point of view, how is tech working its way in and affecting this? And how is it contributing maybe to the dilemma? I mean, it's affecting us from the time even before we're born. You know, people are having an online presence from the time of their sonograms. And certainly from birth, people are almost instantly propelled into an online world that they didn't even give permission <laughs> to be a part of. And although we have protections in the United States, like the COPPA Act, that's, you know, perfectly formulated so that children under the age of 13 aren't used for marketing and that their information is 
protected. So many people just ignore those protections and thrust their lives online from a very young age. So I think technology instantly from the time we enter the earth has an impact on who we are as we develop. So I'm an experimental psychologist. I am the scientist and not in a white lab code, but I'm, I'm the scientist and I also, though, have a developmental psychology course. So my whole focus really is how this technology is affecting who we are as humans and how we interact with each other, which I think has been severely affected. And I don't want to say severely in a negative way, but it, it affects everything. I, having two teenage children too, I have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old boy and seeing how their relationships have developed and the types of things they do for entertainment, I just know the world has shifted in a really major way. And that's not even talking about you know, dating and marriage and all the things that I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit in this conversation. I mean, do you feel the same? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from my point of view, you know, so I, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I grew up in the, you know, as a young child in the seventies and in the eighties. And so, you know, we didn't have any of this tech. Like, yeah, me we too. Didn't, we didn't have same. cell phones. We did. I mean, we had like four channels on the TV I remember when we got our first video game, it was like the first video game ever created. And it was, <laughs> it, it, it was pretty fucking lame. Let me tell you. I mean, we loved it. Which one? All, Which one was the, it? The very first one I had was <clears throat> Pong. Literally yes, Pong. Yes, I had that too. It was a ball. I had Pong too, the ball. And the, yeah, we <laughs> might be the same age. I'm 48. Are you the same age? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm turning 48 next month. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we had the same childhood. Yep. Right. So, and, 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 here's the thing, because of that, um, we didn't have all those influences in our lives. Like I've said so many times, I am so glad that cell phones didn't exist during all those years where we did stupid shit, right? Because oh, yeah. it, it only lives here in our memories and maybe one <laughs> or two old photos somewhere, right? But mm -hmm. it's not plastered all over for eternity. Like, you know, once something is on the web, it never goes away. It doesn't matter if you delete it from its original source. It lives forever somewhere, right? I'm so yeah. glad that that doesn't exist. I also see, I also see the, the pitfalls when it comes to young women. And, you know, because we tend to compare ourselves a lot. And I don't know if it's more women than men or young boys, you know, young women. But for sure, when, when people put things online, it's always the glossy part. And let's face it, being a teenager is hard. And if you see all these people with their filters and all these glossy things, and your life feels like shit. And you're suffering because you have hormones and stuff. And then you're probably not feeling good enough, not feeling adequate. You're comparing yourself and, and probably can get into a very lonely, depressed state. Just even though you're kind of technically so connected because you have all of your online friends, right? Uh, but yet you're feeling really lonely, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I was going to say, and, and, and that's something that I would love for us to talk about more, which is this idea that all of this technology is designed to connect us. And yet, if I really observe, and because I grew up without the technology, I have something real to compare to, I think we are more disconnected now than we have ever been. 
despite the fact that we have all of this technology that's supposed to connect us. Because like the perfect examples, if we're coaching clients, right? And this happens all the time. You, you see people that get into arguments uh, because they're texting each other. Like, I, we need to talk over a text, right? Like, no, you <laughs> do not have complicated relationship conversations over a text, right? You know, if you absolutely. absolutely cannot reach them any other way, like face-to-face, number one, uh, something like this, video, number two, if it's super important and you have to get it out there and there's no other way to reach them, maybe an email. Get a call. <laughs> yeah. yeah, phone call. Yeah, phone call. Phone, sorry, I, I forgot phone call. Yes, phone call. <laughs> he went straight to email. But, but, but texts, texts are like, I'll be home in 10 minutes, right? They're not a place to have that type of conversation. Do not right? dare email me, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> There's so many of them, I forgot one. So, but, <laughs> but the point is, right, is that we have all these ways to connect, and yet the ways that most people choose to connect are the ways that are the least effective at connecting. And that was kind yeah. of the point that I was trying, trying to make there. And so that's a huge conversation that I see is that the technology gives us options, but half of those options are actually not good options. Yeah. You know, I was just saying this the other day. So I text my mom a lot. She lives in my neighborhood. She actually lives less than a mile from me. And when the weather's nice, we go for walks. When the weather isn't nice, we text each other probably five to 10 times a day. Now, here's the thing that the way that I justify it. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been in contact with my mom at all during the day. I wouldn't have called her. We wouldn't have met face-to-face because I'm working. But I can send her little text messages during the day while I am working. I, she will probably text me while we're on this podcast. And she can update me about her day. So what I think we're getting are these little drips of socialization that wouldn't have existed. So on the positive side, I'm able to keep constant contact almost with people that may not have been part of my daily life because of geographic barriers or because, you know, we just don't have the um, emotional closeness. Maybe, you know, I, I heard from another friend who lives in Toronto today. She just, uh, she just lost her sister-in-law and I had messaged her last week and she, she said to me, oh yeah, you know, things are rough and, but she's in a time where she's grieving. I don't think she really wants to have a phone conversation right now. So in lieu of us talking or being able to be together geographically, I think these text messages are a nice supplement, I guess. That said, I'm going to share with you guys, you know, we had luck, lucky for me, a phone conversation prior to this, um, you know, my tryout <laughs> for, for this podcast. And um, thankfully I'm here. But one of the things I thought of is these two people seem so cool. I'd love to come out and see that. That's where my mind goes in terms of being able to bond with an individual. It does go to those face-to-face experiences. So, you know, talking to you like this makes me want more, but I'm not sure that's true for my children, for example. For them, this is enough. This would actually be a little too immersive for them. A phone call, definitely not. They're, you're getting the email. <laughs> yeah, but but don't don't you think it's that becomes a case of you don't know what you don't know? In other, yes, in other words, absolutely. In other words, they think that it's too much. They think that you know the the <clears throat> the technological communication is enough, but it isn't really, and they don't know that because they've never actually experienced what it's really like. Absolutely, they yeah. Well, what it's really like thirty years ago. <laughs> 
right? I mean, because it's just a different time now. What we had, I don't think will be recaptured again in history. Really, I don't. Technology, I don't think is going to ever just fall away unless there's some giant technological infiltration that debilitates all technology till the end of time. It's just too easy. It's just too convenient. I don't even want to give it up. I mean, we're having this conversation right now. We found each other because of this technology that we're also not super happy about. My children will never have the opportunity to live the life I lived 30 years ago. And it makes me a little bit sad, but then they also do things that I never would have. I remember on Fortnite, there was a Travis Scott concert and they were so excited about it. This was years ago. It was one of the first really immersive experiences that was done through Fortnite. And so they had a friend over from across the street. They went down, they were texting their friends, Snapchatting their friends. So it was like this experience that was completely blended. It was online with a friend there, their two brothers. So they had people and they also then had their friends online. And I just think my life will never be like that either. Right. So we're both missing out on something. And with the way work from home is going, I think a lot of today's youth are going to be working in environments where they don't have as much contact with people. So I'm just not sure. Maybe we're preparing them exactly for the lives that they're going to have in the future. And and that's going to bring us to, to I don't like to keep harping on the downside. I like to be more of a positive person, but there are a few, well, no. <laughs> there are a few I think, sort of critical issues here. So I agree with what you said. And like anything else, like just say alcohol, right? Alcohol mm-hmm. can be used in a perfectly fine way. You can go out and have a drink with your friends and it's not a problem. And it can be massively abused and literally destroy lives and families, right? And yes. that's, that's, I see technology as being just like that. It can create that, that wonderful immersive experience that you were just talking about. And it can also create massive loneliness, disconnection and all of that. I mean, think about if your entire life is you work from home, your friend connections are all remote or text or whatever, and you have basically no, and let's say, because a lot of these younger kids I've seen, uh, they end up dating much, much later in life because they don't have all the opportunities and they, they literally become socially awkward as a result of this. They don't date and then they end up sitting in an apartment by themselves with nothing but technology. And I, I just see that as, as sad and detrimental to people's lives. I think it was in, in your book where you were talking that we are replacing the oxytocin that we get from kind of the touch and that that being bonding with people with the dopamine rush that we get from, oh, you got a like, or here's a notification mm-hmm, from mm-hmm, the online mm-hmm. thing. And I think that, I don't think they are interchangeable. I mean, they're not the same. I think you're really missing out if you don't have that, that bonding and that oxytocin in your life. Yeah. What do you think about I, that? I think so too. It's it, Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me because I feel the same, but I wonder how much my view of what is valuable to human connection is shaped by my own experiences. I can also admit that our own histories, our childhoods, for example, what you described has shaped our view of what we need and want as part of our existence. And my children who are having a completely different upbringing are having their lives shaped by it. What you say, Kevin, I totally agree with. So my son, 
went on spring break last week with another family. He actually skipped school for six days, which I'm happy about because I'm like the hippie mom too. I'm like, go <laughs> have fun. Um, school can wait. Um, so he, he went and he had a great spring break. So when he came back, we were sitting at the dinner table and I said, did you meet any girls? He's 14. He's never had anything close to a girlfriend. Now, mind you, two years of that has been pretty much wrapped up in COVID. He, one year entirely, he and his brother were homeschooled through the school, but you know they did online school entirely. So he didn't have a lot of communication with anyone. But I think in middle school, there were certainly people dating, like people were dating. So I'm wondering when are they going to hit these milestones? So he came back and I said, did you meet any girls? And he said, yeah, I met someone. And I said, did you kiss her? And he said, yeah. And my husband's like, ah, I didn't even ask that. (laughs) He had driven him home, but I was so happy. I was so happy that he kissed a girl. He said, he, I said, how did it happen? He's like, well, we were in the hot tub together with a bunch of people. And then I walked her back to her room and she kissed me. And I was like, awesome. I was so happy because these baby steps that my son is taking now, are setting the stage for his later relationships. And I want him to make mistakes and I want him to fall in love and I want him to feel nervous and curious and excited. And, you know, I want him to have a healthy sexual relationship when he gets older. And I think the building blocks of that start, as you say, coming quite young. So, but I I think that our view has been shaped by our own experiences. So I just hope that um, it's not as dire as what you're saying and that there are relationship alternatives, even for people who are slow to the game. Yeah, well, we all certainly hope it's not that dire. Unfortunately, though, I think we're not going to know the answer to that until it's potentially too late, right? Because you have a very valid point, which is that, yeah, what you and I would need you know, being born and growing up in the 70s, it may be different simply because of the time that we grew up. However, it's also entirely possible that those are core human needs that aren't being met in today's technological society that we won't see the effects of until several decades down the line. And, you know, (laughs) I I read uh, yesterday that they just released the census data from 1950. There's apparently a 72-year lag in when they publish uh, census data out to the public. Can you believe that? It's basically useless data at that point. It must be a re-release. Come on. It can't just be the first time, really. The article I read literally said there's a 72-year lag. They don't publish it out. It doesn't mean that they don't have that compiled themselves, but apparently they don't release it. The gist of the article had to do with how many children people are having today. That's a whole other subject. Apparently, we are having half as many children, even though our population is double the size. That's a whole other conversation. But what I thought was interesting about that is that how can we see patterns and how can we course correct with this technology if we don't have access to current data, right? So if we find out that what we're talking about really are core human needs and we need to find a way to shift the technology to better blend both of them together and we can't figure that out until 72 years later, which is three generations later, 
We're <laughs> fucked. We are completely yeah. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this has been one of the things that I've been saying all along. You know, innovation has to come before we study the effect of the innovation. You have to have the innovation first. We're not going to just pilot it with a bunch of, you know, rats. We cannot. We release the innovation and then we see its effects. So there will be a time lag. Luckily, it's not 72 years. <laughs> Typically in science, it's usually a few years. I mean, this data that we just got last year regarding Facebook and Instagram and its effect on teenage mental health, like there have been whispers of this since its inception. However, we just had the data released now. And so it takes years for scientists to conduct a study, to get it published. It's, it'll take a, t- a little bit of time. I agree with you. I mean, I, I would love to have, uh, too, a world with no cell phones for a lot of reasons. It's hard, though, because on the other side of it, I see how many connections I'm able to maintain that I would have never done before. I have friends all over the world. I I can do work on a plane while I'm, you know... I, I can, I have Wi-Fi when I'm flying to Japan, like those types of things enabled me to be more productive. I can seek information in ways that I've never sought before. And I can maintain connections with a lot of individuals who I just would have lost track with before, you know? So there are plus there are pros and cons. Well, you know, if you ask Celine, she will tell you, I am on my phone a lot. So I am not advocating that we get rid of cell phones. <laughs> Full oh, disclosure here. Yeah. I'm on okay, this good. thing way yeah, too often. Uh, yeah, but, that's true. but what I am advocating for is that we have to make sure that we are incorporating and in teaching, especially the kids, appropriate use of the tools before it gets out of hand. Now, I love that you brought up the data on social media because that is actually one of our questions. Uh, we've been kind of wandering around with some different things, but one of the questions we had on here was, what are the effects of social media? So we've got the data now. What does the data tell us? Well, I think Celine was really alluding to this when she was talking about young women. So first of all, the people who are on social media the most are actually the most socially isolated. When we look at the top 25% of use in the bottom, the people with the top 25% of use are significantly more socially isolated than those who, who use it the least. But you can't necessarily say that that's causal, meaning it's not necessarily that social media causes people to be more socially isolated. It might be that people people who are more socially isolated choose to go on social media more, or there could be some third factor that's affecting both of those things. Maybe, um, for example, someone who is in ill health, they are both socially isolated potentially because of the health concerns and they're using social media more. So there are a bunch of factors that probably contribute to this correlation, but we do find that. Additionally, experimental studies show that when you have people reduce their social media consumption to 30 minutes a day over a few weeks, they come back and they're healthier. And they say that they have done more things more likely that have helped increase their mental health. So researchers are saying it's not necessarily that you're taking out social media. It's that you're replacing it with something that's of value to you. Maybe exercise, maybe actually physically getting together with friends, maybe sleep. But perhaps what you're using now, that time for social media, maybe you're displacing time that you could be spending doing a health enriching activity. And so lower rates of depression, lower rates of anxiety are associated with ditching social media or at least curbing its use. One one thing, other thing I want to say is that 
uh, something that Celine touched upon, but there was some Stanford research that coined the term duck syndrome. And I don't know if you heard about it, but I think it captures it really well. This carefully curated online presence that we have really does not depict well the struggle of humanity. So you can think about a duck who's gliding across the water and all you see is this gentle, graceful gliding. What you do not see is that duck is paddling furiously underneath. Yeah. And so we're all paddling. We are all just trying to survive. But what you see of my life is just the most beautiful parts. Yeah, that's huge. So, you know, my personal feeling is it's both that it is um, the healthy things you're adding in when you have more time and some of the negative stuff that you're letting go of. And I know, Celine, you could talk more about this because I know that you're more sensitive to social media stuff than I am. I just, I'm like, yeah, whatever, blow it off. <laughs> but you, you're a bit more sensitive to it. So maybe you could tell us your experience. For me, I notice that it doesn't make me happy. I'll spend 10 minutes and I'll feel worse than I did before. And so, um, and then again, like I'll get into a mindless scrolling that I will feel empty. And then I have the personality that tends to compare to others or think I'm not good enough. And that totally pushes that button. So once I realized that's what was happening, I literally, I don't go on social media. I just have somebody who takes care of the branding. <laughs> I don't care. I don't go. It's been over a year. I and I feel better than I've ever felt. And I've, you know, hasn't really changed a lot of my friendships. What has changed though is that there might be some people I meet and I'm like, I don't remember your name because I'm not constantly <laughs> seeing you there. You know, it's been two yeah. years since I've seen you. I know your face, but I don't remember your name. Um, but um, <clears throat> for me, that was, that was the healthiest thing. But again, I think it depends on your personality. Some people are not affected. Like Kevin, he won't think about that mean comment that he saw of that thing. I'll process it for so long. It's, it's a waste. Like, I don't want to be doing that. Um, what I'm curious, though, about, I want to talk about an area that I think is not often addressed um, for people in relationships. And let's say that... Um, we have so many, you know, we have so many ways that we can connect. Where do you draw the line between like infidelity, cheating uh, on your partner? Like, like what's your does, opinion does on that? Does texting constitute cheating, having a conversation with somebody? Yes. Or like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's boundary is different, which is why couples really need to establish those boundaries early on in their relationship. What do they tolerate? What is unacceptable? Especially as we're entering an age where polyamory is much more acceptable. People, I think, are not as married to the idea that you need to have a single committed partner. You know, people, especially the college students that I study, I have more and more of them who are saying that they're polyamorous, um, they love who they love, that they're those types of arrangements are acceptable within their partnerships. And one of my uh, students described it to me like this. She said she realized that when she ended relationships, it was often because she found someone new who was more exciting, who she thought, okay, well, I'm really into this person. So I'm going to break up with this person, but she hadn't actually fallen in, out of love with person A. She just was excited by person B. Mm -hmm. So polyamory allows her to keep person A in her life if that person would like to stay there. So as we're thinking about the way relationship configurations are evolving, maybe this is a product of tech, of, of tech right? That we can 
now entertain more relationships simultaneously because of that ability to connect. It's easy to cheat online. You know, I've seen statistics from attorneys saying that WhatsApp, Facebook, are responsible for like one third of divorces. So people are using social media as a way to have covert conversation with people who they find attractive. And my own research has shown that we keep backburners in our lives. So backburners are people who we consider as relationship alternatives. Either we might want to have a committed relationship with them, or maybe we just want you know, a one night stand or some kind of sexual relationship with them. We keep them in our communication spheres with the idea that hmm, one day maybe there'll be some kind of relationship with this person. Yeah. And so, but this to me, I see as a big problem. Okay. So speaking of polyamory, (laughs) right? So we, we have a lot of experience in polyamory. We were in a triad when we first met and got together. We had a whole poly community here that we were incorporated into for a while and one of the things that we noticed over all those years is that I love the idea of, well, this allows me to keep this person in my circle. That's, the, that's one of the positives of polyamory. But one of the negatives that's very rarely ever talked about is what we've personally witnessed is that people will always go, squirrel, squirrel, grass is greener over here, let me run over here. And because they have that option... They don't stay and invest in their relationship, the current one that they have. Like maybe, maybe there's something going on that's a little difficult or challenging, and then there's this bright, shiny new person over here, and hey, I'm Polly, so I can go over here. So all of a sudden, all the focus and energy goes over here, and they're not taking the time to focus on building and maintaining their relationship. So I think a lot of that has to do with like how many of these people are going to end up with a similar situation to you, where you've been married for 30 years, Right? Like that's that's not happening because they're just like, oh, grass is greener over here. Or there's the yeah, addiction yeah. to the new relationship energy where yeah, they go from yeah. this because they like that, which kind of is similar to what you get when you're online, that dopamine, that thing. And it's like that new relationship energy, you're really high on all these different hormones. And then yeah. it's like it will come down. And when it comes down, you're like an addict, like I need my next rush, my next fix. But that doesn't occur solely within polyamory, right? It occurs, I think, with people who are in monogamous relationships as well. They also probably feel that same squirrelness. We have high rates of infidelity even within relationships that are supposed to be, you know, committed monogamous relationships. So... I, I don't, I think that new relationship thing is a thing. I, one of the things I I've recently started saying more is that we need to start reconceptualizing love and seeing the fire as the floor and not the ceiling. Those new relationship feelings you have, they're the same ones you have if you're crossing a high shaky bridge. <laughs> it could be just like nervousness, you know, it's, it's uncertainty, it's excitement, it's, daring. It's a rush. And that can't last forever because what happens in love is that we then share more intimate moments. We, we share things about ourselves. We become vulnerable with the other person and they see us at our darkest and our, our most vulnerable. And then it moves to a commitment phase where we say, we want to be with you forever, but that's not compatible necessarily with that fire, that, you know, energy. And I don't know a single couple. I mean, my husband and I are pretty good about keeping our intimacy high. We made a commitment to do it. So it sounds probably a little formulaic for 
for, <laughs> for most people, but you know, we made a commitment and we stick to it and we make sure that we show each other the intimacy that we need as a couple. There's so many good health benefits anyway, but I don't think even with what we have, does his touch feel to me the same way it did 30 years ago? No, of course <laughs> it doesn't. Right. So you can't recapture that. And I guess it's just a decision like with technology, you decide I'm going to stay with this person. And now this comfortable feeling, this feeling that you'll never leave me, that's what I'm searching for. That's what I want. So I'm curious, what are you guys doing? Uh, we talk a lot about what we do to, we haven't, we've only been together for a little over six <coughs> years, so we're not at 30 yet. Uh, but already, you know, if you don't have those things in place, you can see how easy it is to fall out and like, it's so much harder to go back on the intimacy train and, and that connection than if you keep keeping it uh, alive. So we've talked a lot on different shows about what we do with our date nights, with things that we do. But I'm curious, what about you, Michelle? Like, what do you guys do? Uh, what has worked for you? So we did not keep a sustained intimacy connection when I had children, when we had children, but it was definitely more me having them. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so when, when I, <clears throat> when we had children and then just, you know, the breastfeeding. So I had a child and then I breastfed for a year and then I got immediately pregnant again. Um, and then I breastfed again for another year. So there were pretty much almost four years where i felt like I had always something in my body or on my body. And so I remember that time as being really tough on us in terms of intimacy. We'd had a really good intimate connection until that point. I, we didn't, we waited 10 years to have children. So I didn't have my first child until I was 34 and then 36. So we had had a lot of time together. You know, we traveled a lot. We just really enjoyed each other. And then during that about four-year period, I think it was really hard on us as a couple. We were fighting more. We felt more disconnected. And so my husband came to me one day in probably the best way he ever could and said, I would, I would spend the rest of my life with you if we never have sex again. I would still spend the rest of my life with you because I love you. He said, but I would like to have more sex. And so what can we do to kind of, so that we're meeting each other's needs. And because he didn't give me an ultimatum, because he came to me and said to me, look, I, this is not a threat. It felt like such a great way to begin a conversation about, you know, his intimacy needs. So at the time I did pretty much what I propose in the book. So in the book, I talk about, you know, these studies that have shown that increasing sex doesn't necessarily increasing happiness, but if they found people who actually had a disconnect, they would do. So we, we made a compromise. I said to him, so mind you, we're like 37 at the time and we'd been together for 18 years. We like to have sex. And he said every day. <laughs> okay. I said, well, for me, it would be probably one, but every other day. And he's like, perfect. And so we've kept it like that. It's every other day. Now there's some days that we miss, but whether we're fighting before we go to bed or not, we're like, we're, we're having sex because it's every other day. So again, that's the formulaic part of it. But once we start, you know, once I start kissing him or, you know, we get close to each other in the shower, the feelings that we have, like being angry with each other, they kind of melt away. So it does actually bring us a lot closer. And now that we've made that commitment, I would absolutely never have without that type of commitment embedded in it. I think it's really, really important for us. 
Yeah, well, I think it's really, really important for everybody. It's just most people don't really realize that. So, you know, some people are probably thinking every other day, oh my God, that sounds like a lot. I personally, I'm, I'm on, on board with your husband. I would be every day, but <laughs> I, I could do with every other day too. <laughs> but, but, and that's not a joke, but at the same time, really just like you did say in the book, you know, I think it was, I think t- two times a week, if I recall yeah. in the book was like the sort of magic number, like that was enough for couples mm-hmm. to be happy long term. Because there's this whole yeah. like 48 hours of high that you get After if you had a yeah. really good connection. I, and I can really relate to that. I was talking to Kevin about this and I was like, yeah, I feel like when we have really good sex, I mean, yeah, I could go for it again the next day, but I don't really feel like I need to like for two or three days. And I'm like, oh, let's let's do it again. So I, I can really see that um that it can happen, that this afterglow. And one of the things that I do enjoy is milking the afterglow. And mm-hmm. by that, what I mean is we talk about the great sex we just had. Or we, we, we do stories about what we just did. Like we, we recap to each other and the moments we liked or what was good. And it kind of like keeps things going for us too. Yeah, I, my husband and I do that, but in, in anticipation, you know, so when in the morning, he'll say to me, like, when we're on a phone call, <laughs> he'll tell me what he's anticipating. Instead of it being a replay, it's like a, it's a foreplay. <laughs> it's a foreplay. <laughs> so I think, I think that that is a good way, you know, to turn up because so much of our enjoyment of sex is psychological. It, turning on someone's mind can really turn on their body. And so I think what you're doing is perfect. It's like a, an extended session of intimacy, of excitement, of, of you know, sexual interest. And I think that's one of the things, you're feeling wanted. Maslow didn't put this on his hierarchy of needs. <laughs> you know, he said to feel loved. He said to feel belonging. But to feel wanted, I think, is such a great fire it's such a good thing for a human to feel wanted. And um, yeah, I really, I really want my husband. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I, I, I want to sort of uh, appreciate you for being a good example to everybody out there because, you know, you've been in a committed relationship for 30 years. That's a long time these days. Like that used to be the norm. It's not really the norm anymore. So one, there's that. Two, you've managed to actually stay connected and keep the intimacy through that time. And you also had two kids, which is a big thing that a lot of our clients complain about. That That is often the thing that derails their relationship. And you also have a great career. So you've kind of got like everything all wrapped up into <laughs> one. And I just kind of so. wanted to, to point that out to people <laughs> who are listening because a lot of people think it's not possible. Right. They, they literally think that there's no way I can do all of that. And it's hard and it takes a lot of work, but it is possible. So I just I want, kind of wanted people out there to know it's possible. Right? It is possible. And that's an encouraging message. I have a friend who said to me, well, you know, I have children and how am I supposed to have sex when my children are in the house? And I said, you know, I travel for work. And when I get home, I, 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 we live in a very sex positive house. You know, my children know that having a healthy, happy sex life is a part of a good relationship. And it's something that I hope they have. I want them to be open with us about their experiences as much as they can. I don't know how much they will, but you know, that would certainly be a one of mine, but we, they, 
they know, although I don't think they hear us, but they know that we have a healthy, active sex life. We kiss each other. You know, my husband will, while we're cooking, put me on the counter and kiss me and I'll wrap my legs around him. And I think that's good for kids to see. Whereas most parents think I need to hide that. I remember going, um, we went to one of my son's golf tournaments and I hadn't seen my husband in a while. And so we were just walking along in the beautiful golf course and I was holding his hand. And when we're stopping, I just, you know, looked up and I kissed him and, you know, he like stroked my hair or something. And my, my son who was golfing was probably 11 at the time. And he said, mom, you need to stop kissing dad. And I said, why, why? And he said, I think the other parents will get jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That means you need yeah. to be kissing more. You got to inspire exactly. those other parents. That's what I said. I said, can it be a model? And he's like, no, just don't do it. Um, <laughs> but I thought, I thought part of, you know, I think part of the reason why people feel like I can either have a career, I can, you know, focus on this or, you know, those boundaries that they create themselves or for themselves, you have a real time, hard time switching roles when you become a parent. And it's hard to be both a parent and a lover because those are not necessarily compatible. So if people can just find ways so that they are still attending to the lover parts of themselves, I think it would be really enriching for a lot of people. Absolutely. You know, people need to think of it as like, you're not in one role all the time or another role all the time. It's like, I put this hat on for this moment, take that one off, I put the other hat on for the next moment. You need to be able to move back and forth relatively easily through all the roles that life demands because life demands a lot of roles not just one yeah yeah Yeah. and I think it's great if my kids can see me as a a person who loves their dad Mm -hmm. you know they they asked me one day they're like I don't understand this couple that we see at the arena because my kids play hockey they're like they have five children and I've never seen them touch And they said, you and dad only have two children. I'm like, well, (laughs) much of that was for pleasure and not procreation. (laughs) But, um, you know, they, they, then they start looking around at other people and understanding that like a something in a couple what a great model that Mm -hmm. i've shown them you know and i hope that openness or that those ideas stick with them when they eventually have relationships you know what i find fascinating is if you don't show your children how to love you you're not going to teach them and then they'll go online and find that education through porn or dysfunctional relationships. You're doing them a disservice because they are seeking that. They are wanting a role model. If not you, they'll find somebody else and it's probably going to be sucky. Um, And I think that's important to realize that. And I thought another point of what you said about being wanted and what I think could be interesting with the online aspect of being wanting wanted is that you can get some of that need met through other people like wanting you or that that online persona right that you put out there but then you don't have to act on it with those people you can act on this with the person you've committed to be with if you're not in a monogamous relationship so that might be could be like one way of using technology to be like because we do that to where we're like hey this person was hot or like oh it was nice to flirt with somebody we are in a monogamous relationship but it's not like we're closing down our heart or or our genitals to anything that's beautiful where we're like (laughs) oh this is highly arousing over there let's (laughs) let's enjoy that and then let's bring this energy to each other so in that moment, I really saw how actually that could be a way that we could use that technology 
and the connection and the ability to be wanted online to get that need met and then come back with our partners too. Absolutely. I think what that takes is a high degree of honesty, though, and openness. You know, you guys are talking about a subject that is so taboo to most people. They don't have open conversations with others, not even their closest friends about their intimate moments and how they feel. And so for you guys to be able to have the conversation that, oh, I saw someone and they were hot, but let me bring all of this energy to you. Like that's evolved. That's something that most couples will never get to. It's hard because we also then feel pretty protective of the mates that we have. We want to hold on to them. And so anytime that our mate is attracted to another person, it might feel like a threat to the stability of our partnership. So I think people, if they can get to your place, that's probably really beneficial because people do feel those attractions. They just don't usually feel comfortable enough to express them. Like you said, you can't close off your, that's a good expression, can't close off your heart and your genitals <laughs> to, well, you know, to attraction. The, the, the key really, uh, at least for us, and it seems like for you is, your husband came to you and said that I would be married to you for the rest of my life, no matter what. So what, what is he doing there? He is basically cementing in the trust, right? Because he's coming to you and saying, I am in this a hundred percent for the long haul till death do us part, so to speak, right? I'm, I'm in this with you. When you have that level of trust, then it's way easier to say, Oh, by the way, I saw so-and-so she was hot. Because the person's like, yeah, whatever, I know, he's already committed, like, I trust that what he tells me is real and he's in, right? So that, that's the level that we have. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, that's lucky. I don't think a lot of people have that, you know? I don't feel that a lot of people trust that. And I think a lot of people also um, might lose attraction to their partners. You know, a lot of this we've been talking about is getting yourself in the right mind frame. But what if over time you're not attracted to your partner anymore? What do you do then? How does that shape your relationship. Um, I know I was looking at some research recently about the most common sexual complaints or issues in, in couples who are having sexual problems. So they seek counseling for the sexual problems and they all have to do with desire. All the top ones have to do with desire. Uh, either they feel they're not desired or they no longer desire their partners. And that comes from both men and women. So, I think being, you know, desiring a person could change and we have to think about how that evolves through the life course. And I think it's tough. You know, I'm, you know, Kevin, I, you're about my age at at this point in my life, as I'm heading into my fifties, I'm trying to do everything I can to maintain my health and maintain all of the vitality that I feel that I've had through my lifetime. And I, I'm doing that in part so I can continue to have healthy physical relationships with everyone in my life, whether that be roller skating with my kids or having a really positive, intimate life with my husband. Right. I want to, I'm trying to make that happen. Um, but it's hard. I think it's hard. It does take more work. I mean, so that, that's a huge piece that we work with couples on is how to get that desire and that drive to want to be intimate back again when when you've lost it that is honestly a whole other show about how do you actually do that let's write that down it's a good topic for another show it is that's a great topic okay you know this conversation is fascinating i have I have so many more questions, but we literally are actually out of time for this episode, um, which is too bad because I have so many other things I want to ask you. But anyway, uh, first of all, um, 
tell people about your book, where they can find it or anything else that you want to plug. Great. Yeah. My book is out of touch, how to survive an intimacy famine with MIT press. You can get it anywhere where you buy books. That's all I want to plug. Anyone, people can find me online if they have any questions to follow up with. I've never actually revealed this much of myself on a podcast, <laughs> so I'm feeling kind of vulnerable. Oh, well, we've um, got one and, more question for you. Uh-oh, 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 vulnerable up until then. <laughs> I just want to, I, I want to just say the, the book one more time because um, Michelle is, is very humble and she just kind of like glanced over that, but I read the book. I enjoyed the book. I'm also like a numbers and like science research kind of guy. So it spoke to me from that point of view. Um, and I just think there's a lot of value in here. So I think that people could learn stuff. Uh, I highly suggest that you pick it up. And the Thank data you. is also um, like currents. Because sometimes, you know, you, you pick up books and it's like, well, that was 10, 15 years ago. This is more like two, three years ago. Like it's, it's still very relevant to what's going on. So it feels, yeah, it just feels current. Good, good. I'm so happy you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. It means a lot to me. So we get to our to very work. last question. If you thought you were vulnerable, Michelle. Is this, is this the same? Do you do the same last question for all guests? We or do. do I get a specially picked one? Uh-oh. We okay. do. We want to know what is your best sexual talent. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's very, very broad. It's enthusiasm. I'm enthusiastic. I'm enthusiastic as a lover. I always like when my husband comes home, I will sometimes like throw my arms around him and say, never leave me. And I'll just like start kissing him. And I think, like I said before, sexuality, a lot about being turned on is turning on the mind. So I, I, I'm enthusiastic. I always enjoy myself and I always want to make sure that my partner knows how much I'm enjoying myself. I know that's probably a generic answer. I'm sorry I didn't give any. (laughs) Look, you can answer the question any way you want. I can honestly say uh, from a man's point of view, having a partner who is enthusiastic about sex is actually really important to me. We talk about this a lot, but one of the things I always say, especially as I get older, which is that, you know, when you're younger, you're just like sex anytime, anywhere. I don't really care so much. I'm just happy that I'm actually having sex. But when you're older, not only do you uh, require a deeper connection, but for me, like, I could be super horny and, and wanting to have sex. And if she's not into it, it's not even fun for me. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, well, well if you're not into it, then I don't know. What's the point? Why am I even here? You know, like, let's just reconvene <laughs> yeah. another time. Right. So someone who's enthusiastic. Yes. I get a, a big thumbs up for that. <laughs> Yay! Good. Okay, so my talent is is, is something that's probably hey, you know, universally good. You're the researcher, so so you can you can ask people how many people that have been married for thirty years are still enthusiastic about their sex life. Not I, yeah, that well, that's, many. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's the part that, that's probably unique. I and I think people should know too because I think maybe a lot of your listeners, it sounds like they might not be at the point where you guys are, or you know, they may be feeling like their sex life needs a little bit of oomph. What I will say is, you know, fake it till you make it in terms of enthusiasm. Maybe you're a little bit tired. I am at the end of the day, a little bit tired, but if I feel like I'm going to be enthusiastic, it makes it so much better for both of us. So it's a commitment sometimes to just feel those feelings and, and just, it'll happen. So anyway. Commit to it. (laughs) Great advice. Absolutely. Yes. As we always say, you don't have to be in the mood. You can create the mood. 
Absolutely. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, guys. It wasn't, I didn't feel that vulnerable. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Well, thank you for sharing, for your openness. Thank you for all the uh, fascinating data to, to that you threw in there. Like, it's just amazing. And for people who want more, make sure you get the book, Out of Touch. Michelle, it's been a pleasure having you today. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have for this episode. And we will see you next week. We hope you like this episode of the Love Lab podcast. If you enjoy this show, subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. And for more free, exclusive content, join us in the Passion Vault at CelineRemy.com forward slash vault. That's C-E-L-I-N-E-R-E-M-Y.com forward slash vault. Thanks for listening. And remember, you're amazing. <laughs>